I have absolutely no idea what we're doing here, or what I'm doing here, or what this place is about, but I am determined to enjoy myself. Now you want to talk about reading? Let's talk about reading. Let me tell you the days of high adventure. The book served as a passageway to the evil worlds beyond. Ready to go, Doc? Oh, yes, yes, my dear fellow. I'll just check the gyroscopes. Hello, and welcome back to the Appendix N Book Club Podcast. I'm your co-host, Hoy, and with me as always is that lanky, almost albino, Jeff Goad. Hey, everyone. And this week, we're very excited to have special guest, Terry Olson. Hello, happy to be here. So, Terry, um, tell us a little bit about yourself as it relates to your experience in gaming. Um, When did you come to gaming and specifically fantasy gaming? Uh, so I came to gaming through the Holmes Blue Box. Uh, I think it was the summer of 78, maybe. I was I was 10 years old. Um, and yeah, I, I had discovered it through some cousins of mine who were into it and played Blue Box for maybe six months or a year. And shortly after that, we started seeing AD&D books um, show up in the bookstore. And so I started buying those, uh, stuck with AD&D for quite some time, you know, went on through first edition, second edition, third edition, 3.5, played fourth, and then transitioned to DCC RPG after that. So it sounds like unlike a lot of gamers, you didn't have a long sort of step away period or break from, from the continuity of gaming. Well, I did. I mean, I... You know, there are, there are certainly some years where there were was very little gaming. Um, I, I spent a lot of time as a musician, and then also uh, I'm a physicist now. But you know, when I was in graduate school, there wasn't a whole lot of time for mm-hmm. RPGs, sadly. Okay, but definitely doesn't seem to be like major gaps in sort of the generations of the game. So you've seen the game evolve uh, right. throughout throughout the course of it. Indeed, yeah. indeed, yeah. Okay. And now, like Hoy and I, you are a big fan of the DCC game, and one of the reasons we invited you on is you are also a DCC writer. You've written quite a few adventures for DCC, including um, some stuff for the upcoming Linkmore box set, so it's cool to have you on here. Now, DCC RPG is very much inspired by the Appendix N. When did you become aware of the Appendix N as a concept, and had you already been reading that fiction prior to knowing what it was? Yeah. Um, so my first exposure to Appendix End fiction was actually before I started playing D&D. Um, I was nine years old in fourth grade, and my teacher decided he was going to read The Hobbit to us in class. And so every day he read an excerpt of The Hobbit. And so that was my first um, brush with reading Appendix End. And 77 to 78 were really great years for that type of thing. Star Wars came out in 77. And Mm. then um, 78, we had the animated Ralph Bakshi, Lord of the Rings. Sure. Uh, Wizards was around 76 around there, 76, 77 as well, speaking of Bakshi. Oh, yeah, right, right. Yeah. 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 Although I, I, that was, um, that was not on my radar. As a right, kid. that was so, mature audiences only, I think I remember at the time. So. Yeah, probably. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and also since Lee Brackett co-wrote one of the Star Wars movies, those are also part of the Appendix N. Oh, there you go. There you go. <laughs> yeah. 
Um, so yeah, so I, I became aware of that fiction before I actually read the DM's guide and saw that there was an appendix in, and those were in there. I, I'm a little embarrassed to admit that I got sidetracked by the uh, the Frank Norman Gore series. <laughs> <laughs> so when I was, you know, I I, uh, I didn't know as a kid who Edgar Rice Burroughs was, and so I had no idea I was reading these. <laughs> these books that were sort of knock, knockoffs of, of, of ERB. Yeah. Um, he's a, he's a professor over here in the uh, city college system in New York city. So. <laughs> oh, oh. I, I did enjoy the books as a kid. I, I've never reread them with an adult perspective, so I'm, I'm not quite sure I'd enjoy them as much now, but anyway. That's funny. And that's cool that that guy's still alive because actually Michael Moorcock, who we're discussing today is the only appendix N author who is still currently living. Mm-hmm. And um, the, this week, uh, we're reading uh, the springs to the book of the week. It's Stormbringer. So which uh, which version there are you reading there, Jack, by the way? Well, thanks to Terry Olson, um, I'm reading an unabridged version. Because originally, the one that I had picked up, which is this stunning first edition paperback from 1967, with that cool Jack Gogan cover, where Elric is all sleek and it's just a stunning painting. And he's got this ginormous um, sword that seems to have some kind of white light coming off of it. I was originally going to read that one, but then Terry emailed me when I posted the picture to Instagram and pointed out that the version I was reading was missing about 25% of the text in some of the stories. So very um, because of Terry's warning, I went ahead and picked up the 1970, what is this, 1977 version of the paperback from, do I say DAW books or do I say DAW books? Do you know? I generally say DAW, but Daw? it is Donald A. Wolheim, so it is an acronym. So. Okay. So I picked yeah. up the the DAW book that's got the, uh, who's the oh, Michael Whalen cover yeah. where Elric is this like, I don't know, he's climbing on top of what looks like a ruined Castle Grayskull and there's some kind of a dragon in the background and there's a whole lot of action going on. And the, the sword is in the air and the horn is blowing in the wind. Uh, it's got the, the green sky, right? It's yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. It's yeah. very cool. And I would also like to take a second and read the back of the 1967 Lancer paperback because it's pretty cool. It says, sword and swordsman, which would be master? Stormbringer, mighty rune sword of Elric the King, hung far away in the city's armory when he needed it most. He had sworn never to touch the enchanted blade again, but his throne and his power were little comfort when evil supernatural beings abducted his lovely wife Zerazinia. He would sacrifice the world itself to rescue her, but would Stormbringer, which seemed to have a life of its own, allow it? And then there's a quote from J.G. Ballard that says, Michael Moorcock is the most important successor to Mervyn Peake and Wyndham Lewis. Nightmare armies clash on the shores of spectral seas. Phantom horsemen ride on skeletal steeds. And what's I also funny indeed. is on the back, it says complete and unabridged. <laughs> <laughs> I just noticed that. A Lancer book, complete and unabridged. It's Fake the news. unabridged, abridged version. Right. <laughs> so, Hoy, which version are you reading? I am currently reading the Del Rey 2008 copy, although I did read the 78 one when I was a kid, 77 one. Um, so, and that's in publication order. Is that right, Terry? As opposed yeah. to, uh, right. And um, I believe it's the original magazine text, possibly with a few more of his edits, because it's really hard to nail down a definitive 
Moorcock text because he was frequently revising his stuff um, at various points. I think the last major revision was when he did the White Wolf hardcovers in the late 90s, uh, but I could be wrong about that. Um, so this one, in fact, has the first two books, and then later on we find out, so it's um, Steeler Souls and Stormbringer, and then later on he sort of backfills uh, a lot of stuff that happens uh, in Elric's life, which then became the Daw series in the 70s of six books. And uh, which version are you reading, Terry? So uh, the version that I read for the podcast is the the ebook version of the Delray, the 2008, um, because he has said that that's the most definitive version of the text. That's sort of the closest to his intent. Um, but I do have two other versions. Speaking of abridged, I have uh, the 1968 Mayflower. Whoa. Oh, I version. love that. Yeah. Wait, did, you, uh, did is, you pick that up at this Gen Con? This, uh, no, no, I've uh, I've I've had this. I, I didn't get it at Gen Con. Um, okay, so this like is Bob, Bob Haberfield. Um, this is also abridged. Uh, so this okay. this is uh, this is the British abridged version. All right, which which I guess is the, the Mayflower were the I think were the first people to pick it up after science fantasy folded, and so um, so this like like the Lancer version doesn't have. Uh, very much in it. But one of my favorite things that I I read almost as, as much as the text is the Topps uh, graphic novel. Oh, sure. Of, Craig Russell. Oh. Yes. Of, of, yeah, those of are Stormbringer. Right. right. So so this is Topps Dark Horse. And, uh, you know, this is P. Craig Russell who who did a bunch of the Moorcock uh, books as, as graphic novels. And they're, right. the, the art is fantastic. And right. you still get the essentials of the story. Right. That uh, reminds but, me. I really two, like of my, two of my other favorite artists of the Moorcock are um, Michael T. Gilbert and George Freeman from the first comics days back in the, uh, I guess, the early 80s, late 80s, somewhere oh, in there. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah those so that, are that's, awesome. Those are gorgeous also. Um, okay, so, yeah, I mean, it's he, I think um, between Michael Whalen, Jack Gogut, I mean, there's been so many, like, depictions of, of Elric that it's not quite definitive the way that Frank Rosetta has his definitive Conan, right? Right. Um, but I think there's something about it. Maybe it's that sort of whole tormented aspect. I think there's something about it that speaks to the sort of fantasy fan who's, uh, you know, um, a little bit of an outsider or something like that. They want to just get, take a shot at Elric. So, yeah. so, uh, so Jeff, do we have a uh, Hygaxian word of the week? We actually have two. I've got the Hygaxian word of the week, and Terry has one to share with us as well. The one that I am submitting is hireling hireling. And the reason I'm using this one is it's not a particularly florid word, but it's a word that I feel like we don't really encounter in our day-to-day usage much. And it's definitely something that is used quite a bit in early Dungeons and Dragons. And the definition is actually a derogatory noun for a person employed to undertake menial work. So the word I am submitting is hirelings. Terry, what do you got for us? So my word only occurs once, I think, in the text, but it, it really struck me when I read it as super cool. So I, I made a note of it, and that is negromantic. Yes, and and uh, it's in it's in Dead God's hom- Homecoming, which is the the first novelette in, in Stormbringer, um, and the quote is Elric awaited them, now filled with the negromantic vitality which his sword supplied, and the word sort of has an interesting history. Um, Negromancy originally being associated with necromancy, but then the church 
um, you know, in the Middle Ages thought that if you're speaking with the dead, then then that has to be the province of devils. And so then Negromancy became more associated with uh, demon worship and, and things like that. But it's kind of a, a fun history to, to that word. So anyway, Negromantic. Yes. Very cool. So I guess with that, we can go on over and start chatting about the book itself. I would just like to start off and say, holy fuck, this book is amazing. <laughs> I actually think this might be the my favorite book I've read in this project so far. Wow. What do you guys think? Wow, that's a tough one, because I think every week I could say that, except for about, um, you know, Blue Star. <laughs> sure. <laughs> um, but I remember it being like a big shock to me when I read it. As a kid, I mean, like many people, I sort of became aware of Michael Moorcock through deities and demigods. I mean, I wasn't quite an old enough to be aware that he was already depicted in um, Gods, Demigods, and Heroes. And then um, it's like, what is this? This is a hero, but he's listed as chaotic evil in deities and demigods. I got to read this, you know? <laughs> and yeah. then, you know, and then to see, you know, okay, now I see why he's chaotic evil. I see exactly, <laughs> you know, listed as chaotic evil at least, right? You know? Um, you know, the fate of his many companions, you know, he's just not a good person to be around. Um, Anyway, um, yeah, I mean, it still has, it still packs a wallop, I think. It's definitely a angry young man's book, and it's not something I think you could write at the age of, you know, 30, 40, or 50. I think it's definitely someone who wrote this in their late teens and early 20s, at least conceived of the character. Um, And so it has that energy. And I think one reason I might want to tack on to why I feel the way I do is when I'm reading a book, it is very, very rare that I will have a response to a book that comes through outside of my outside of the insides of my head. And when I was reading Eyes of the Overworld, at the very, very end of that book, when Kugel is dropped right back on the other side of the planet, I was on the subway at the time and I actually laughed out loud. And it is very rare where a book can make me actually laugh out loud. And the end of Stormbringer actually made me cry. I had literal fucking tears in my eyes at the end of this book. Yeah. So <laughs> same thing happened to me. Yet. Yes. Same thing happened to me. Yeah. 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 We're all we're and, all and, unglum. <laughs> sorry, boy. I, actually, you know when when Jeff Jeff and I Jeff approached me about uh, recording for this show, and I, I think this was at Brinkmanomicon. Uh, last year or the word I yes. think it was yeah so it been 13 and, months ago yeah and and there were a couple books that that were sort of on our list one one was a library I don't I don't I don't remember which which library it was um and then and then one was this and you know the minute he mentioned Stormbringer I was like oh my god I love that book you know and I had this huge reaction and Jeff's like okay we're gonna do that one <laughs> you know, just, just based <laughs> off uh off my reaction but um yeah, I'm I'm with you, Jeff. It's like you read the end, and and you just you know, it's like a the wind has been knocked out of you. It's it's yeah. so so uh, impactful, and this is one of those books I feel like carries more weight if you sort of read it in publication order rather than internal chronological order because of all the eternal champion stuff and everything else going on in it. Um, if you read all the Elric stories up to this, then you sort of already have a really good idea of what's going on, and and okay. and you kind of 
you have a feeling how this is going to play out. But if you read in publication order, um, it's a lot more painful. <laughs> you know, you don't have as many hints that, that this is the way things are going to go. And you don't know about the eternal champion uh, concept and the multiverse concept and, and everything else. So, yeah, I love this book for sure. Right, right. Is it my favorite Appendix N? I don't know because I love Fritz Leiber also and I love Bats and, uh, you know, I love Lovecraft. I mean, it's hard to pick a favorite, but this is definitely one of my favorite reads right, for right. sure. I want to latch on to something that you said, Terry, and just to sort of tease it out. This is not a comforting work of fiction. A lot of fantasy is sort of, uh, inherently sort of restoring order. And this is the exact, it does in the end, but the, there's nobody to appreciate that order <laughs> left yeah. at the end. Yeah, totally, totally. <laughs> you know, um, and, and, you know, it may be, it, and even in the end, because if if the, I mean, we, this show is all spoilers, right? So if in the end, what Elric has done is to lay the groundwork for our world, the one that we currently live in, then was it worth it in the end after all or not? Right. I mean, Oh I think- yeah. Yeah. So let me, let me, let me touch on those Hoy, because you know, Mordecai has this series called aspects of fantasy that, that he, he, I think there's four parts to it that, that he wrote about, but he tries to sort of talk about the genre a little bit. And in the first so this one, is nonfiction. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. And, uh, and in the first one, which he wrote in 1963, um, he says, uh, I'm just going to quote him directly. He says, therefore, one of the differences between fairy stories and the major proportion of adult fantasy stories is that an adult story rarely produces a comforting end. Whether the hero wins through or not, the reader is left with the suspicion or knowledge that all is not quiet on the supernatural front. For supernatural also reads subconscious and you're still with me. So it's, it, yeah, so it's, you know, he's definitely like that sort of a, a characteristic of the genre for him is that, it, you know, you should feel uh, kind of unsettled, right? Uh, when it, and, and you certainly do at, at, at the end of it. And this is right, 63 would have been as the stories were coming out. So, I mean, he had a deep level of awareness of what he was attempting to do. I mean, whether he had the maturity or perspective was one thing, but that he was deeply aware of what he was attempting to do at that very moment. Yeah. And, and even more to your, to the point that you made, you know, in, um, in 65, Alan Forrest wrote a review of, of Stormbringer. All right. So, the, so, so, uh, uh, a contemporary review. And when he, he closes it sort of similar to something you said, he says, uh, most of all, I feel that Michael, that Mr. Moorcock's battle between good and evil is a sad story. If it did happen in some early world of supernatural twilight, a lot of men died in vain. Elric fought for a decent world of the future, one that he would never enjoy. What did we get? Buchenwald, the atom bomb, and brainwashing. Perhaps Mr. Moorcock's world has something. Could the, source of the court, could the sorcerers have done much worse than that? There you go. Yeah, yeah so, that's a punch in the gut. Yeah. yeah. Wow. Um, so so let's look at maybe sort of what makes this work. I mean, we're talking about the ending, but what makes it work up to that ending? Is it structural? Is it characterization? What are the things that are contributing to that overall effect? Well, for one thing, it's just so fucking badass and metal while you're reading it. You know, I, I, there are so many, and I mentioned this when we when we did the episode on the Stealer of Souls, but it's, it's again happening here in Stormbringer. There's one particular paragraph I have right here on page 90. And it says, Scenes of terror were everywhere to be found. At one time they saw in the distance a frightful sight. 
a wild and hellish mob destroying a village built around a castle. The castle itself was in flames, and on the horizon, a mountain gouted smoke and fire. Though the looters had human shape, they were degenerate creatures, spilling blood and drinking it with equal abandon. And directing them without joining their orgy, Elric and Moonglum saw what seemed to be a corpse astride the living skeleton of a horse, bedecked in, stra- in bright trappings, a flaming sword in its hand, and a golden helm on its head. The, the the image of that is just like leaping off of like an Iron Maiden album cover. You know, it's it's just it's so awesome and evocative. And that that dude that he's seeing, who's got this golden helm and giant sword riding riding atop this skeletal horse, isn't even a character who's ever mentioned. This is just something he happens to see in his wanderings. Right. You know, it's it's stuff like that that makes it such an exciting read. And then to also have it be this really emotionally impactful story with this really kind of dark, complicated character only adds like another level of depth that makes it really powerful to me. So, yeah. But how do yeah. How, how do we feel as um I mean this is like I said before a young man's work I mean it's still having an impact on us but is there something that is um, immature about it? I'm not, I'm just saying that as devil's advocate, you know, or, or is there something that, or do we read it differently than we would have read it maybe when we were 18, 20? Well, I guess you could pick on the, the characterization of, of, uh, Zarozinia in this, you know, and that as, as a mature reader, you might want a little bit more from, from the relationship there. I mean, this is a romance, right? This uh, th- this story is sort of gothic romance meets Greek tragedy meets some nihilistic text, you know. But but the romance is really between Elric and Stormbringer. That's mm-hmm. that's the romance, you know. Right. That's true. She even yeah. she even makes a point of that, right? Because there's a one point where he leaves Stormbringer lying on his bed, and she comes in and she makes a comment about like his true lover or something like that. Absolutely, right? yeah, yeah. <laughs> I see you still have your mistress or something like that, right? right something like that. <laughs> Yeah. Uh, and I think, I think uh, Moorcock, you know, related to the fact that he he mentioned somewhere that he was writing this in the throes of a particularly uh, dramatic personal relationship that he had had. And so, you know, I guess you feel a lot more when you're at that point in your life, too. So, yeah, well, for it more intensely. Um, yeah, I don't think it's um, I, like I said, I said that as devil's advocate. I don't think like I would have the energy, let alone the talent, but the energy to write it in that same way whatever my despair or, or, or stuff like that would be of a different flavor at this point in my life than what he was throwing out there. Um, but I don't think it reads as um, sort of naive, which sometimes, you know, certain kinds of heroic fiction can read sort of as naive. I agree. I, you know, the, the, I don't have much bad to say about the, the piece, um, but there are a few a few things like I, I do think that the depiction of women is very underdeveloped. I think that Zarazinia is there primarily to kind of worship Elric, and also it's 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 a cheap ploy that's used. And even just the very last book we we read, it happens again and again where we start off the story by kidnapping the wife of the character or the girlfriend of the character, and that's what leads us on this adventure um, that just happened. And um, oh, I'm sorry, it wasn't the last story we read, but it happened in the Gates of Creation. It happened in the second Pellucidar book. It, it's 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 kind of a cheap gimmick, and also all the other women we meet, you know, Vivian the Enchantress, 
who is this kind of very cool character who's watching over Roland, she is also essentially just there because she worships Roland. You know, we, we, we are introduced to these really kind of cool women, but their role in, 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 in the world, the greater world around them is really just kind of like to, I don't know, make the men feel even cooler. And although like Queen, they mentioned in passing that Queen Yashana dies gloriously in battle and she's clad in metal, which is very, very cool. We don't see that. We don't spend time with her. Um, so some of that does feel a little, a, a little both of its time and also kind of um, an immature vision of the world. Uh, but I don't feel like, for me as a reader, it really interfered with my ability to enjoy it. Right. And and to Moorcock's credit, I think he addresses this later on in a variety of his works, like Gloriana or the the, uh, the Phoenix and the Sword. Um, so he sort of broadens his depiction of the various types of characters and and um as terry you were mentioning he sort of briefly mentions the eternal champion but we're as you say if we had read these in sort of internal chronology we'd know exactly what the eternal champion is so we have this hint of what that is and then later on we start to see these aspects and start to see where they're they're both tragic but that there's sometimes where the hero champ the eternal champion at least is granted peace within their mortal lifetime and that's yeah. never going to be the case with Elric. Uh, yeah, so and Elric I will, definitely- you know, I'll say in in his defense, you know, sort of talking about depiction of women and, and those characters, um, it gets it gets a lot better uh, later later on in in the Elric saga. You know, Fortress of the Pearl, which came out in '89, has this great great character, the main dream thief. I think her name is Una or something like that. Um, she's a really strong character, and then uh, Revenge of the Rose in. 91 also has this really uh, kick-ass warrior woman whose name I think is, is Rose actually. But, uh, but uh, you know, so I think as, as Moorcock got older, um, the characterizations got better on, on, on that front. Good. I'm glad to hear that. Yeah. I think one thing that's really compelling about this particular book and series as well is that Elric is an incredibly successful anti-hero. You know, we've got Kugel, and Kugel is a blast, although Kugel really puts the anti in anti-hero and really doesn't bring much hero to the anti-hero. Um, and then, like, Shadow Jack kind of does a similar thing. Like, I love Kugel and I love Shadow Jack, but neither of them really do hardly anything good for the world, where Elric really is. Like, he's he's delighting in torture. He is stealing the souls. He's murdering his friends. He's He's doing all of this stuff, and but ultimately is still fighting for what is supposedly going to be the, 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 the better, the better world ahead. Yeah. I mean, it's yeah. almost existentialist, right? Cause he has no, he has no conception of what that better world, if it will ever come to pass. And he knows that he has no place in it. And, and what does that better world even look like? Yeah. It's, it's relatable because he's so flawed, you know, like everyone has some sort of, of weakness for which they're, they're dependent on something, you know, and the, and the Elric Stormbringer relationship is so relatable that, that I, I think it really makes him an intriguing character, you know, and, and the, the whole thing about like the Gothic versus the, the Greek tragedy, you know, like the, there's that, um, you know, Gothic fiction has this Byronic hero, right. Where you have, you know, somebody who's, who's moody and proud and cynical and defiant and, you know, He's, he's always sad, um, but he can, he can, you know, still be really caring or affectionate and he can be vicious. Um, 
you know, Elric has really got that going on. And then he's also, you know, like so tragic, you know, he has, he has uh, hubris, um, you know, the book's full of irony. I mean, there, you know, he's got so much going on where at the end you're just like, damn. And at the end, you know, when, when he says all this happened and I don't know why, right. Like, I, like I, 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 I forget what the exact quote is, but he's, he's, he's talking to, uh, separates, or I don't know, I don't know if that's the right way to pronounce it. Right. But, um, so this is in doom Lord's passing and it's just, it's, it's just right at the end. And, and, you know, separates tells him, you know, don't try to find meaning in all of this. You know, if you tr- try to find meaning, you'll, you'll go crazy. <laughs> and he says, yeah, I've, I've lost my wife. I've lost my world. And, and I don't know why, you know, and it's just, it's, it's so powerful. Even, it really even, is. you know, even, and especially, you know, like you were saying, Jeff, you haven't read it in, in order of, of internal chronology. So you, you even haven't been along with Elric's entire life and sort of been exposed to everything he's been through and still Moorcock can just hammer you, you know, with the, with the story. It's, it's really impressive. And so, also that very final moment too, like the the very 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 end of the book, when when Stormbringer the sword after Elric has died, kind of takes like a semi human form, and then he says, I, "I love this farewell, my friend. I was a thousand times more evil than thou." And then he just like leaps into the air and spears off into the sky, and like <laughs> filling the universe with its unholy joy. <laughs> I yeah. love that. And like it's it's the bit of surviving chaos in this in this new world rebuilt with law. And so you also just know that like Stormbringer, the essence of Stormbringer is is the essence of evil that exists in our world now. Like evil evil isn't dead. Evil still exists. And it's kind of fun that Morcock leaves that with Stormbringer is like kind of kind of like the devil, the Satan of the world that we live in now. Mm-hmm. The yeah. original sin of this, the original sin of this new world. Yes, yes, absolutely. Yeah, yeah of course. Yeah. Um, so, what do we think about Moonglum or or some of the many supporting characters around it? Do we need is Moonglum essential to this process in order, like, as to sort of make our mortal viewpoint like a, sort of an entry point to understanding Elric and this world that's going on around us? Is he the the classical medieval jester, sort of pointing out the folly of the king? You know what. It, what is his role in here for us? So Moorcock has said that, that Moonglum is, is based off of a personal friend of his. And, and, you know, if, if Moorcock is Elric, then Moonglum is this friend of his. And he's, you know, he has said that he intended him to, to be there to sort of show the lighter side when, when Elric gets so lost in his doom and gloom that Moonglum is there to kind of, you know, bring us back with a little bit of hope or, or, or brightness. And it's interesting that Moonglum definitely shows fear many points in the story, right? He, he almost goes into a catatonic state after he's tortured uh, by Jagreen Lauren. Um, he makes possibly one of the greatest sacrifices and he thinks he's willing until the very last moment. Right. right? <laughs> you know? Oh, yes. Um, yeah. Right. Right. Because he, he offers, because Elric has no more strength to blow the horn the last time to bring about this new world, right? And, and Mungalum says, you know, basically let me be the strength by letting Stormbringer stab into me, right? And but then you know, let me let it do its work. Ah, no, I had not expected this. His eyes blurred and filled with horror as he pierced by Stormbringer. Right? Yes, yeah. is that us? Are we are we all Mungalum? You know, <laughs> for for some for some Elric out there. 
but even that, you know, that's one of those hubris moments, right? Because right. the the only reason that has to happen is because Elric refuses to kill Chow Green Learn with right. with with Stormbringer. You know, right? Elric's like, I'm not going to contaminate my soul with <laughs> with your your badness. So I'm I'm going right. to torture you with you know thousand cuts or whatever he does with Moonglum's right. soul sword, right? Right. right. So transitioning this over to the gaming side of the conversation, I mean, I think clearly alignment is a very obvious point of entry for discussion here. Um, how does the Elric books and AD&D's nine-point alignment system get along? <laughs> uh, not at all. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's yeah. very obvious that, that this and the Broken Sword, which I have yet to read, um, but it's it's very obvious that this has very much has a, a big impact on the OD&D law-neutral chaos, but it really seems like AD&D really just kind of forgot where it was coming from and started making it too based on morality. Yeah. Yeah, I'd agree with that. Yeah. I, and I think that was uh, a variety of concerns, some of them possibly commercial, uh, although, you know, once they put evil in as an alignment, that's a little, you know, it's a little... Even if it's supposed to be not playable, people are going to want to play it, right? Yeah. Um, but I think, you know, maybe it was a little hard for people to wrap their heads around law and chaos as um, as a role-playing hook, mm-hmm. you know, without additional exposure to Appendix N. So, you know, here we do the nine-point alignment, but then that's dogged us ever since by, is it cosmic? Is it behavioral? What is it, you know? And it makes sense because yeah. if you just look at the words and you don't know the reference points, it's easy to be like, oh, this means my character likes to follow the law, follow the law. And, oh, that means my character likes to cause chaos everywhere he or she goes. And that's not right, at all what right. it means, but that's certainly what it looks like it means. Yeah. And I think, I think um, you, you mentioned, it's interesting. You mentioned Broken Sword, which um, is not till book 56, um, but it is undoubtedly a major influence on this book, especially in terms of sort of, uh, you know, end of the world vibe. That we have here. Oh yeah, and and the if I remember right, the 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 sword in Broken Sword is a black blade. It's black. It's not necessarily imbued with its own personality, but it's definitely cursed to like strike down kinsfolk and and right. and lovers and family and stuff like that. So it's definitely got and so the, again the sheer anger. Um, you know what we've read of Paul Anderson so far has is not going to necessarily prepare us for Broken Sword. Broken Sword definitely has a much more, you know moorcock vibe for lack of a better word although it's obviously going the other way yeah and moorcock has cited that story in particular as an influence and has said that he thought that was anderson's finest work bar none and i keep hearing that that's anderson's finest work as well so i'm excited to get there because as people who've been listening to this show know i was pretty underwhelmed with three hearts and three lions but i was pleasantly surprised by high crusade high crusade was fun yeah yeah have you read all three of those terry and yes Yeah, yeah 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 and broken sword is my favorite so if you were to run a Elric-themed or Melnibone, uh, Mel- is it my – has it again? Melnibone? Melnibone, I think. Melnibone, okay. Yeah. Well, I'll, I'll um, say Elric. So, Terry, if you were to run an Elric-themed game, which system would you use and well, why? DCC for sure. Yeah. Uh, DCC is, has almost got everything there. Um, if I was going to try to – you know, I – I would want to have some kind of destiny mechanic okay. because there's this, this underlying theme in the Elric stories and especially Stormbringer of um, being strung along by fate, 
somewhat. You know, there's the question of destiny versus free will, free will, and you know, in Stormbringer, especially, you're hit with these prophecies, and you know, are the prophecies going to come true no matter what you do? In sort of the, the Greek tragic sense, right? And so, I'd want some kind of destiny mechanic, and then I can't help but think of. Uh, uh, James McGeorge Black Sun Death Crawl and sort of a way to create some hopelessness. You know, there's there's a vibe. Yeah. At least in Stormbringer of uh, of sort of a, you know, what the hell am I doing this for? And is it even going to matter at the end of the day? Right. And so I'd, I'd, I'd want to sort of mix that in somehow. Right. I think it would be a relatively easy sort of almost swap out of the traditional luck mechanic within DCC to something like a fate fate or destiny mechanic within a context of a um, an Elric game. Yeah, well, James does uh, that with Black Sun Deathcrawl. I think he has hope or something. In, in yeah, yeah. yeah. And yeah. another thing that I would probably you, do if I were going to run an Elric-themed um, or style game in DCC is I might swap out stamina and call it vitality and when your when your spell casting goes poorly, you don't get corruption, but you lose vitality and become weaker and weaker. Because that's a constant theme throughout the story: is, is Elric's constantly being sapped of his energy from his from his whenever he tries to do any kind of spell casting. And that's also kind of a, an appendix and trope in general, which is that wizards often get exhausted when they overexert themselves with their spell casting. So that's something that I would like to kind of see brought into kind of a DCC Elric. Um, kind of mechanic. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, and most of his magic is um, evocations, whether it's of elementals or of chaos beings. It's not your, um, you know, your fireballs, your, um, you know, the sort of more spectacular. Although, I mean, Elric is the highest of high fantasy, but it's not that kind of thing that, that's happening. Yeah. yeah he right. never casts any spells like that. They're, 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 you know, he's either summoning or he's dispelling. Uh, essentially throughout you know all the books you you know there's never a magic missile that goes flying from his hands you know that's true and really we don't really even see much of that we we do see we do see fireballs being uh thrown at him from the chaos side but other than like the fireballs we really don't see much of any of that even kind of in this world oh but along these lines how are you know how did D not give a dragon a breath weapon that was venom that caught on fire. I know that's just too right. cool. I think that is so cool. How, it's really how cool. did that get swept under the rug? Right. 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 I agree. I guess the closest thing would be the black dragon, but that's just venom, venom, right? It's acid. It is. It's acid. acid. Yeah. Fire. Right. Right. Um, did you, when you were in the, do you recall the Stormbringer, Ken St. Andre games and the later sort of uh, Chaosium and RuneQuest shoots, shoot offs, uh, offshoots of the, Elric and Eternal Champion series? Just vaguely. You know, I saw them in the yeah. stores and and I actually have uh, I have a PDF copy of of the first edition of, of Stormbringer, yeah. but I never played it as a kid. Yeah, I remember looking at it and thinking it was completely unplayable because the the balance, you know, because Elric was basically a superhero, had something like 45 strength when he was fully charged up, and you know, all your normal human characters topped out at 18 or whatever, and he had like 150 skill points or whatever, you know. Um but yeah, I wonder if that, I mean, game balance was not obviously a major factor in early game designs, but I wonder if the RuneQuest system um, is the most closely associated with Elric, but it's probably not the best fit, right? I mean, I think, I think we're 
well, all on the same page that DCC seems to be the best fit for that. I mean, oh, I think so too. Could be our, our, yeah, I could be our lens, but that's that's certainly where I'm thinking. But traditional D and don't think is a is a good fit. And so whatever the special sauce that was applied to DCC seems to make it work better in that in that context. Five E now has this uh, hexblade warlock that is uh, a direct rip on on Elric, where you have a, a spellcaster that's tied to a sword. Uh, so, you know, I guess 5e is trying to do something along those lines. Oh, interesting. Now, in general, regardless of the system you're playing, and regardless of whether you're trying to do an Elric-themed adventure or not, how much room is there for prophecies and fate in your fantasy role-playing? Yeah, that's a tough one. That's a tough one. How do you... Um, I, I've struggled with that with the adventure writing, and, and I don't think I've ever done a, a job that I'm particularly proud of where, you know, how do you how do you leave agency and yet still have the players feel like they're on a railroad yeah. so that it, it right, right. right so, that, so that they don't get ticked at you. You don't want to upset anybody, especially these days. You know, railroads are a big no, no. But um it's hard to have, at least for me, it's hard to come up with a really good way to do that, to have some sort of prophecy and destiny that you really feel like it's going to take a lot of effort to avoid, right. even through your I own think, actions. Right. I think trad RPG or OSR is definitely has a tougher time with that. And it seems that maybe for a certain extent, the, the story games are sort of a response to that kind of thing, right? To in terms of emulating fiction and destiny, and you know, so I don't know if fate specifically or one of the apocalypse world, uh, you know, offshoots would be more suited for that specific aspect, fate and destiny, um, than you know, a D and D derivative. Um, it is tough, right? It's definitely like you have to get people to. You almost have to do. I mean, I hate that phrase, session zero, but you have to get people to buy into this concept. We're going to play a game that's about fate and destiny, and, and not about winning, but how you respond to the world that goes on around you, right? Yeah, but you may even have to resort to quantum ogres, or you know, I mean, you you, you have to somehow have a way that that player choice isn't going to matter, even though the right. players don't know it, right? And that right. and that gets that gets hard. I don't know that I agree right. with that because I, I feel like. Michael Moorcock both gave us the idea here and a potential solution because there's that one moment where I forget what exactly happened, um, but Elric ended up doing something he wasn't supposed to be able to do. And then Seepitz and the 10 were like, oh, that's not what fate said was going to happen. So we've got to go away for a little bit and talk to fate and then find out what's happening now. We'll be back in a little bit. Uh, So... (laughs) I feel like if you do incorporate fate and destiny in the way that Moorcock did with this story, where, you know, that is how it's written, but that doesn't mean that you can't override that, that still allows for player agency. And it, it and especially if you're kind of vague in your prophecies, you know, maybe some of the things do come true, and but maybe they totally don't. And at that point, fate needs to just kind of readjust and figure out what the new fate is. Yeah, that's a good point. That's a good point. I play that adventure, Jeff. Start right. I just think as a judge, you have to let go of what the actual final endpoint is supposed to be. I think you can have a game where fate and prophecy are very much a thing as long as you're not actually trying to take them to a specific place. You know, if you're if you're specifically trying to take them to a place where they sacrifice themselves to end a world of chaos and have it rebuilt in the in law, 
then you're, you have such an endpoint in mind that you have to railroad your characters to get there. Um, but if you just want to have a world where fate and prophecy is constantly there, just kind of like messing with the characters, then you can do that without railroading them in any direction. Yeah. Well, I have to say, Terry, that one of the things you've actually worked on maybe also gives us a, a lens into this, which is in DCC Lankmar, we have the uh, the boons and the, the, the Benisons, right? Yeah. So you can take on a, a doom or, or, or something like that. And so if that will drive your action. In order to gain this benefit, you'll take on a doom. And that basically gives the judge leeway to say, yeah, this bad thing's going to happen to you because you allowed this to happen, right? Yeah, yeah, that's true. And, and that's sort of an aspect of, you know, point by systems like GURPS, where you can take on like a really huge disadvantage in order for this to happen. Yeah. And obviously, you know, uh, DCC Langmar is self-limiting. You can't take on 30 dooms, right? You can take like one, right? Just to, as an aspect of your personality. So it's not going to get out of, get out of hand in that regard. You can, you can spend so, luck to, to take more. You can reduce your, right. your luck score to, to take right. more. But yeah. it's still, it's still, it's still, it's still self-limiting to the extent where you can't build a character that has like 600 disadvantage points in order to get, you know, a thousand. Uh, yeah. You, you can't know, just keep right. taking, klepto- yeah. oh, I'm a kleptomaniac and I'm an alcoholic <laughs> yeah, and I'm right. overweight right. and I have bad eyesight. Right. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> you know. But I'm also a superhero. Actually, uh, <laughs> uh, one game I did want to say that we forgot to mention, though, is uh, Warhammer Fantasy, as, as, at least as far as depictions of like chaos and mutating the world and just sort of like the world just falling apart, right? That the actual aspect of chaos seeping into the world is is probably Warhammer Fantasy might be the one of the closest in terms of Moorcockian vibe. I'm so unfamiliar with it, which I, I really would like to remedy that. Um, have either of you guys played enough of Warhammer Fantasy and or Spyhander to know if those might be a good fit for something like this? I'm still reading Spyhander. Well, I haven't you, you have another Warhammer. year or two to go. <laughs> it's <laughs> all, was it, it's, I think it's a thousand pages, right? Right. What it's, about, it's gigantic. Sorry, Hoy, what about Shadow of the Demon Lord? Have, have any of you guys played that? I haven't. I haven't looked at that. I think that the vibe I got off of that was a little bit more like what happened if uh, Sauron wins, right? Or like, uh, remember that game, um, The Shadow or something like that? It was like a 3E era game. I'm trying to remember if I have the right right name of it. Um, but um, that definitely, yeah, I think though that has definitely some of that vibe too, right? It's definitely, he was a, he worked on second edition Warhammer Fantasy Roleplay, as I recall, Schwab. Okay. Um, so he, he may have been picking up some of that. I do know that the later games workshop stuff, it's, it just becomes more metal rather than like really sort of despairing of chaos. If you look at the original uh, Warhammer Fantasy Roleplay first edition, I think it definitely has that chaos vibe. Um, it's a little bit between Lovecraft and Warcock, but then later on it just becomes all very metal. So, um, but again, I think DCC is the closest because it's sort of a little bit open-ended. It allows you to, um, you know, play with both aspects because there's some points in this book too, right, where chaos is very um, comforting and seductive, right? Arioch and Siombarg and the various Dukes of Hell are depicted as being exceptionally beautiful, at least in their the forms they first choose to take until they get angry and then they become you know much more demonic looking yeah and actually um, they they almost get away with it right coming back to moonglum I, right they 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 almost and get i would have gotten away with it too if it weren't for your kids that's right <laughs> you know when they're when they're pouring on their you know this is in uh black swords brothers right where they're um, you know, Elric confronts them and they start, they start talking to him and Elric gets confused and, and, and weak and, you know, Moonglum steps in is sort of 
you know, with his shaky voice trying to find the courage, telling them, you know, no, you've gone too far. There's supposed to be a balance, you know, and you've 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 taken it too far and there's going to be a reckoning, you know. And, and then they say that that even even Stormbringer regains its confidence with the with the pause that Moonglum allows by by stepping this up. Yeah. Now, Stormbringer itself, would you guys permit Stormbringer in your in a campaign you were running? Oh yeah, a weapon that powerful, with but with that big of a price. Terry, oh, yeah. Terry's saying yes and and nodding his head vigorously. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> How about you, Hoy? Would you permit Would you permit Stormbringer um, or something like Stormbringer in your world? I mean, uh, I guess they've done it already, right? So, I mean, it, DCC, it would obviously be for high-level play, but DCC has those great sword magic rules and, and, you know, how, you know, each sword is different and has its ego and all these various things like that. And, I mean, in first edition in the the Dungeon Master's Guide, they had, you know, swords had egos and intelligence. So Yeah, but this one was, specifically already- is incredibly powerful. And is, when it's sucking souls, you get stronger and stronger and stronger. And I mean, Elric's capable of becoming like almost, of gaining almost godlike strength depending on what he's slaying. Right. But he also is, runs the risk of slaying all the people who are trying to help him and his loved ones and right. all of the other right. PCs. <laughs> right, right. Well, I mean, they've appeared already in DCC, not to the quite the power, but, you know, there's the Black Feather yes, Blade, the Black Feather Blade. In, uh, one, one module. Um, trying to remember if there's another cursed, you know, it's those, it's those Daniel Bishop magic items that always have a, a really bad side effect. Yes, you know. um, as they should. But <laughs> as they should, exactly. Yeah, with, with Daniel um, Bishop, you have to beware of the magic items. With Terry Olsen Adventures, you always have to look up. Oh, don't give away <laughs> yeah. my secrets, Jeff. <laughs> <laughs> um, <laughs> it's the uh, yeah, you know, I one thing that I do as a judge um, is a lot of times I'll cut and paste the uh, magic item thing from the module and and onto an index card and give it to the uh, the players, but I'll black out anything I don't want them to know, redact it, and slowly reveal it to them as they use the the device. Um, and so I feel like with Stormbringer, you would just have like a, a car that just says Stormbringer and then the whole rest of the card would be black. Yeah. <laughs> until, <laughs> until they start using it, right? <laughs> totally. Know? And that's how you play. It's like, oh, okay, well, you know, all right, that was plus five, but now do you want to know what the side effect was? <laughs> <laughs> Guys, I feel like with, with this book, we could have a couple more hours of this. Cause I mean, I'm just looking at my notes here and there's so much we didn't even cover like I like talking about like magic resistance and patrons and demon summoning and like insanity. And at one point Moonglum needs a month to recover from his injuries. Um, the idea of questing for it. We've got lots of questing for it in this book. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah. So yeah. much stuff to talk about here. The astral body and planar travel, the differences in planes. It's just, it's so dense and so rich. And I guess since we're kind of running out of time, um, is there like one last thing that like you really want to like talk about before we close up this conversation? Ooh, one last thing. It's hard. I know there's so much. <laughs> <laughs> there's so much to talk about with this. Um, let me nerd out for a little bit. So, so sort of, Please. uh, lighten the mood, I guess, uh, or, or provide a cure for insomnia. One of the two. Um, so there's, you know, in sad giant shield, um, the, uh, the heroes 
get saved by Strasha, king of the water elementals, and taken to his realm. And he tells them a little bit about getting the chaos shield, right? And he says, uh, he says, the chaos shield, ah, oh, yes, it belongs to an exiled god, does it not? But his castle is virtually impregnable. Why is that? It lies upon the topmost crag of a tall and lonely mountain reached by 169 steps. Lining these steps are 49 elder trees, and of these you would have to be especially wary. And Mordaga also has a guard of 144 warriors. I'm explicit in giving numbers, for they have a mystic value. Right. And, and if the beginning, the beginning of Sad Giant Shield, right, uh, starts off with uh, with sort of a poem. And the poem is 13 times the steps to the giant's sad giant's lair and the uh, chaos shield lies there. Seven times seven are the elder trees, 12 times 12 warrior CCs. And so uh, when I read this and Strasha tells us explicitly the numbers have a mystic value. Um, you know, being somewhat of a math nerd, I wanted to figure out if there was something in particular that that um, he was going for uh, with with these combinations, rather than just being perfect squares. Right, 169 is 13 squared, 144 is 12 squared, and 49 is 7 squared. All right, but but something that's fun, and this this only applies to the 13 times 13 and the and the 12 times 12. Those are numerical palindromes like uh like madam i'm adam or taco cat or you know go hang a salami i'm a lasagna hog whoa (laughs) that wins that totally wins all right but but for example you know 13 times 13 is 169 but if you read that backwards 961 is equal to 31 times 31 and and the same the same is true for 12 times 12 12 times 12 is 144, but read it backwards, 441 is equal to 21 times 21. Oh now, my I have God, no I idea that. if if that's the mystical value Strasher was referring to, but but I thought that was kind of cool. That is really cool. Oh, I really love that. Mine is a is a brief one, but I'm a big Judges Guild geek, and I love the um I love the Wilderlands. And in the Wilderlands, there are the Arishalons, who are the the dragon kings who once ruled the lands. <clears throat> and very clearly, this comes straight out straight out of Elric. But one thing that was that never quite made sense to me, after, especially after reading Stealer of Souls, is why in the Wilderlands do the Arishalons have green skin? And reading in Stormbringer, uh, one of the uh, one of the one of the Mel- Melnibonians of the past was Terhali, the Green Empress, and she oh, was yeah. she had all green skin. So I'm guessing that maybe that's where they got the idea of having the the Arishalon Dragon Kings have their green skin. Nice. That's it. Uh, Hoy, how about you? That's a deep cut. Um, I think it's interesting that uh, well, it's, that this is both a midpoint and also a major influence on stuff that comes after. So Moorcock is obviously drawing on all sorts of strains, uh, both mythical and previous fiction, but then he's obviously huge influence on, for example, Game of Thrones, right? The, the Targaryens are, are nothing but Melnibonians, yes, right? Yes. So, yeah. <laughs> um, and, and all these depictions later on. So I think that it is um, interesting. He's like almost like the ultimate remix artist. And, and that's what we do as gamers, right? So don't be afraid to remix. Um, and, and get over your anxiety of, of 
taking stuff and remixing it. Yeah. Don't, you know, file off the serial numbers so it's not just literally, you know, just you're playing Elric. That's not fun, I don't think. But this whole idea of a world in balance or out of whack is tremendous and just, you know, run with it, run with it. Don't think like, Oh, my world has to be perfectly naturalistic. And, you know, um, for lack of word, a better word, you know, internally logical, right. Cause there's nothing about of that here. Yeah. 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 Steal it, change it, make it yours. Yeah. Word. So any other, <laughs> <laughs> I guess that is the last word. Yes. Yes, it is. We so, are can I, time. so can I push your patience with one more, one more Go thing. Ahead. <laughs> you can delete, one it. One you can delete it. You can delete it if you want. But but you know we didn't talk about music at all in this. And, oh. And, oh yeah. The and, and there's you know there's a lot of allusions to the sound you're hearing. Yes. Um, you know th- throughout the books there's um it, it Pantang there's the screaming statues. Um, you know, Stormbringer's moaning and, and, you know, the sound Stormbringer makes. And even when Elric jumps off um, the tower to travel to see Roland um, to, to get the horn, there's this cacophony that suddenly becomes resonant before he jumps. But first, with the right. first step, it's like it's just kind of a slight tone. And as he's going up, it's like it's building in crescendo. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Right. And so I and don't know, forget that people probably know this, but you know, there there are there are songs devoted to uh Stormbringer. You know, Blue Oyster Cult has Black Blade on the Coltsosaurus Erectus album, which uh was co-written by Michael Moorcock, and then Moorcock worked with Hawkwind. And yes. so there's the Chronicle of the Black Sword album, uh, Warrior on the Itch of Time album. So there's a lot of music to to get you in the Stormbringer mood, right? right. If you, <laughs> right. If, although if you want to find it, as far as we know, Moorcock didn't actually torture anyone for their perfect screams. <laughs> that's, right. that's right, and that's always hard to do live. I like, right? <laughs> well, Terry, thank you. That was a really great. One last thing. It's been awesome having you on. I'm so glad that you waited for 13 months. Uh, that mystical number to uh, right. <laughs> to be on this episode. Yeah, we'll have you on again in thir- yeah, thanks a lot, 13 guys. times, 13 months fun. for the next one. <laughs> totally. <laughs> so much fun. All right, so uh, the next two books we'll be ha- tackling will be Manly Wade Wellman's Who Fears the Devil, and after that will be Jack Williamson's Darker Than You Think. Take it away, Great. Jeff. And you can go ahead and you can rate us on iTunes. Please do. It helps quite a bit. Uh, leave a review. Uh, you can send us an email at appendixnbookclub at gmail.com. You can follow us on Twitter. We're at appendix underscore N. We've also recently moved over to MeWe, where a lot of the Google Plus people are fleeing to. So if you want to go to MeWe, you can join Appendix N Book Club. We're a group over there as well. We've also got a Facebook page. So check us out. Say hi. And until then, read on. See you in the stacks. Bye, everybody. The library is closed.